Good morning, everyone. Happy Lunar New Year. It's an exciting time of year here in Hong Kong. It's a season that's all about blessings. And as Christians, it's natural for us to ask, what does it take to be blessed by God? Have you ever wondered that question? What does it take for me to be blessed by God? When I was in middle school or high school, the time a lot of us in this church were in our formative years, there was a study done on the religious beliefs of U.S. teens. And the study found that for most teens in most U.S. churches, their functional belief, they, they called themselves Christians, but functionally, they believed in something that the researchers labeled moralistic therapeutic deism. Now here's what that means. They believe that God is moralistic, that is, he's primarily concerned with whether or not they're a good moral person. They believe that God is therapeutic, that God exists to make them feel good. And they believe in something called deism, which is a view that God exists, but he's out there. He's fundamentally disconnected from our world, separate from our day-to-day -day lives. And on a functional level, this view of moralistic therapeutic deism, it can lead to almost a, a karma-like view of life and a belief system where if I do good things, I expect God to bless me. That's what it takes for God to bless me, is just be a good person and do good things. And if I'm feeling unhappy or if things aren't going well, it must be because I've somehow messed up or God's punishing me for doing something wrong. And our world today pushes this karma-type understanding of God from so many angles. It's, I think it would be quite natural for many of us, even in the church, if we started to believe, I get blessed by God by being a good person. God exists to help me be a good person so that then he can help me feel good about myself. And we're gonna look at that belief today. We're gonna, we're gonna look at someone who by pretty much all accounts is a bad, messed up guy. But what we're gonna see is that he's a bad, messed up guy who is blessed by God. And how does that happen? Well, it happens because repentance is the key to God's blessing. That's what we're gonna to see today. Repentance is the key to God's blessing. We're gonna look at understanding the story, the evil of Judah, and the transformation of Judah. But before we jump into the passage, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for a season where we can just take a break from our work and celebrate friends and family and just enjoy a break. Pray that you'd be at work in our hearts during this time to draw us closer to you, to help us understand who you are and how you work, and to grow to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. So, first off, understanding the story. We, this year as a church, have been reading through the story of the Bible together, and each week we've had a sermon that covers something from our previous week's reading in the story of the Bible. So. We started talking about creation. We saw that God established his people, Adam and Eve, in his place, the Garden of Eden, under his rule, which was his word, and that led to his blessing. But then humanity rebels against God's rule. They're kicked out of God's place. They remove themselves from God's blessing, and really things just spiral out of control from Genesis 3 to 11, and it shows us there is nothing humanity can do in our own power to get back to God. 
But we saw last week, God hasn't given up on humanity. He's working to create a new people for himself, bring them to his place under his rule and bless them. And that new people that God has chosen for the blessing is the family of Abraham. And that's what we talked about last week is Abraham and Isaac. And then the, the reading plan and the story of the Bible continues to follow this family of Abraham. And as we go into the book of Genesis today, we're looking at Genesis 38, Abraham's great grandson, a man named Judah. And I realize if you were paying attention during today's scripture reading, you probably have a ton of questions about this story because realize the Bible was written in a different time and a different culture than we live in. And there are certain stories in the Bible where we just feel that gap more deeply than other stories. And this is one of those stories where we feel that gap really deeply. And you probably have tons of questions about it. We're, we'll get to those in just a minute, but probably not least among your questions is why, why would our pastor give his son the name of someone so gross and terrible? Had he not read this story in the Bible when, when they chose the name for their son? And we'll, we'll cover that too. Don't worry. It was not an accident. It was not an oversight. We actually named him after this guy. So now you have to listen close to hear the story of why we would name our son after someone so messed up. And let's start by just looking at the passage, Genesis 38, and explaining what's happening here. So we're all on the same page. We can understand the cultural background of this story. So the story starts with Judah. He is the great-grandson of Abraham. His dad's name is Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons who eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. And Judah leaves the family. He goes to stay with his friends in another area. And while he's there, he sees a Canaanite woman. He takes her as his wife. Now, spoiler alert, all through the story of Abraham's family, Canaanite women are bad news. God tells Abraham's family, stay away from them because Abraham's family is God's chosen people and the Canaanite women are going to draw Abraham's family away from God. It happens over and over and over again anytime Abraham's descendants decide to go and marry or be with Canaanite women. So there's a red flag. The text is telling us this is going to end badly. Also, the language here of seeing and taking, he saw her, he took her, that's straight out of the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve saw the fruit, they took the fruit. Something bad is going to happen here. All the indicators are pointing in that direction. And of course, it does. Judah and his wife, they have three sons. And he finds a wife for his oldest son because in their culture, arranged marriages were the standard. But verse 7 tells us that this son, the firstborn son, Ur, turned out wicked and God killed him. Then in verse 8, Judah says something that's kind of shocking to our culture. He says to Onan, his second son, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now that's weird, right? What is going on here? So what it is, is it's a practice called leveret marriage. You don't need to learn that term, but basically this was something commanded in later on Israel. In a patriarchal society, men are the main ones who worked. Men are the main ones who earned income. If someone died and left an inheritance or property, the men were the ones who inherited it. To be a woman, 
your provision came from your father or your husband or your children. And to be a childless widow meant that you had left your father's family, you weren't going to be provided for by him anymore. Your husband was dead, you weren't going to be provided for by him anymore, and you had no children. You had no one to provide for you. You couldn't own property, you couldn't get a good income, you were destined to die in poverty. That's why childless widows in the Bible, they're mentioned in the same breath as orphans and outcasts and the poor and slaves. And with their culture and social barriers, it wasn't as easy as it is today for a widow to just go out and remarry, find someone else to marry. So what God did is he built in this safeguard to protect, protect childless widows from being condemned to a life of poverty. And here's what the safeguard was. If an oldest brother in a family married a woman and died with no kids, the next oldest brother married the widow of his dead brother and had kids with her that counted as the brother's kids, which means any inheritance from that brother could be passed on to those kids and they would have property and income so that the mom and the children could be provided for. And so Judah tells his second son, Onan, to do this for his first son's wife because the first son died with no kids. But this second son, Onan, doesn't want this to happen. He doesn't want this woman to have kids with him that count as someone else's kids. And so he practices the birth control method of pulling out to make sure that that doesn't happen. Which actually is doubly cruel and oppressive. Because first, he's robbing her of the opportunity to have kids. He's robbing her of the opportunity to be financially provided for and to have a stable income throughout her life. But second, he's still using her body to get sexual pleasure. You know, if he was really that opposed to having kids with her, he could have refused to get into bed with her in the first place, but he doesn't. He enjoys the physical pleasure of sex with her, but does it in a completely selfish way that's using her and taking advantage of her without giving himself to her in return. And let me just point out at this point, if you are someone who struggles with pornography, pay special attention here. Because God hates the fact that Onan is willing to use this woman's body for his pleasure without fully giving himself to her. It's oppressive and it's abusive. And God sees what he is doing. God says that it is wicked and God kills him for it. And when we talk about pornography being sinful and evil, this is a huge part of why. Whenever you look at pornography, you're doing the exact same thing to the people in the pornography as Onan is doing here. You're using their bodies for your own pleasure without giving of yourself to them. And I realize pornography doesn't feel oppressive or abusive like what he is doing in this passage, but recognize pornography is one of the leading drivers of the human trafficking industry in today's world. It is not a victimless sin. It is oppressive and abusive. And beyond just pornography specifically, this reality of sex being able to become a tool that we can use to take advantage of others and use them. That's why the Bible is so clear that sex is only to be done in the context of marriage, a lifelong committed relationship. And so if chastity and obedience to God in the area of sex is something that you struggle with, 
please come talk to me or to someone in the church who you trust because God wants to set you free from that sin. He wants you to live in a way that's obedient to him and thriving in that area of your life. And he's given you a church family to help you fight it. So use the resources that God has given you to fight this temptation in your life. So back to the passage. Judah has now lost two of his three sons who have married this woman named Tamar. There are still no grandkids, and Judah starts to think, maybe, maybe this has something to do with this woman being bad luck. And he starts to be afraid for his third son to marry her because the first two who married her died. And if the third one dies, then not only is she childless, but Judah himself becomes childless, which is a terrifying thought for him as well. So he comes up with an excuse. He tells her, my youngest son, isn't old enough to get married yet. So he says to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, go stay with your parents. We'll let you know when my youngest son, Shela, is ready to marry you. And the part that he leaves out is that that day will never come. So years go by. Tamar is waiting and waiting. Judah's wife dies. He takes a work trip with his buddy Hira, and Tamar hears about it. She hears that they're going to pass by their, her town, and she's upset because enough time has gone by that she should have been given her third husband by now, and it still never happened. And remember, as a woman in that society, that's a scary place to be. She has no husband, no children. She's left to the mercy of her extended relatives who may or may not want to provide for her once her parents die. So she comes up with a plan that is shocking and disgusting to us, but it's actually her last ditch desperation move to try to make sure she's taken care of later in life. It's a move that puts her life in danger, but by this point she's realized I've got to try something. Because if she doesn't, she's gonna end up dying a slow, painful death in poverty and shame one day. So she figures I may as well risk my life now for the opportunity of having a better future later. Worst case scenario, that slow, painful death becomes a quick death. And her plan, her brave, bold plan, is to seduce her father-in-law. And here's the logic. He owes me a child. He won't give me my legal husband so that I can have that child. So I'm going to trick him into having that child with me. And so she dresses up as a prostitute. She sits along a path where he'll be walking when he comes into the town. And when he walks by, she lets him hire out her services. They negotiate the price. He doesn't have the payment with her right, him right then. So she takes some collateral that she can hold on to until the full payment comes. And there are three things that he gives her as collateral. The signet, the cord, and the staff. All of these things are markers of his identity. So that if he doesn't pay up, she can find him. She can say, this guy that these things belong to, he owes me a goat. But here's the trick. She actually doesn't want the payment. She doesn't want the goat. She wants these proofs of his identity. She wants proof of who the father is in case she gets pregnant. And that's why when he sends the goat later on, she's disappeared. She's not there to collect it. Because her plan is actually to get pregnant and have a child and she knows how her father-in-law Judah will react when he finds out that she has cheated on his son. Which is exactly what happens 
in verse 24. Judah hears that Tamar is pregnant, and his response, oh boy, bring her out and let her be burned. Burn her, is his exact response when he finds out that she is pregnant. Which again, to our ears, sounds very harsh. But in Bible times, that was the penalty for adultery. She was engaged to be married to Judah's youngest son, Shelah. So from a legal perspective, she was treated as his wife. And since she was pregnant by another father, she clearly committed adultery, which gets a death sentence. And this is where the last part of her plan comes in. They're bringing her out to burn her. She pulls out the three items. And she says to Judah, these belong to the father. If you can tell who they belong to, you can get the full justice your son deserves and kill the father as well. And of course, Judah recognizes them because they're his. He sees what she has done using him to get the child that he was withholding from her. And he sees his own sin and he saves her life. And six months later, she has twins who carry on Judah's family line. So that's the story. Even from a surface level reading, you can see Judah is a bad dude here. He's the type of guy you probably don't want to be like, the type of guy you probably don't want to name your child after, right? Can we all agree to that? Except that your pastor did name his child after this guy. So before we get to why my son was named after this guy, let's just look a little deeper at this story and Judah's role in it. Because actually, yes, you can see now that Judah is a bad guy, but he's so much worse than you realize now. Let's look at the evil of Judah. So to help us understand Judah and his role in the story, let's, let's move back a little, a little bit of his backstory. He's one of Jacob's 12 sons. One of, if you know the story of Joseph from the Bible, Judah is one of Joseph's brothers. If you don't know Joseph's story, that's okay. Come back next week. You'll get to hear it then. But this family, they are the heir of God's promises to Abraham. It's a very important family. And Judah is the fourth oldest son in the family. But sons number one, two, and three all did horrible things that basically forfeited them the right to be the firstborn or to be act as or be treated as the firstborn. And as in some cultures today, being the firstborn in their society was a big deal. It meant you got an extra inheritance when your dad died. It meant you got a special blessing from your father, but it came with the responsibility of being a leader in the family. Which means by the time we get to Genesis chapter 37, the chapter right before today's passage, Judah is functioning as the leader among his brothers, doing the role of the firstborn. And how does he use that power in Genesis 37? Well, all the brothers are mad at their younger brother, Joseph, who is their dad's favorite, and they're jealous, and so they want to kill him. And Judah uses his power as the leader to save Joseph's life, which is good, but he does it by getting the brothers to sell Joseph as a slave, which is basically a death sentence in itself, and is really bad. So Judah, before we even get to this messed up story, he's on a bad trajectory. Okay, just that's the background of who this guy is and what he has done so far in this story. And then we get to Genesis 38 and Judah gets so much worse. 
Now let me outline some of the key things we learn about Judah and his evil, wicked heart in this passage. First thing, Judah has absolutely zero self-control when it comes to women. Verse 2, he sees a woman who's supposed to be off limits to him because she's a Canaanite who's going to lead him away from God, but he wants her, so he marries her. And the only thing that we're told about their relationship before he marries the woman is that he saw her. So it sounds like this marriage is based solely on physical attraction, that it has nothing to do with any type of relational connection or any, and either spouse having any type of good character, which might help explain why their sons end up so evil. But this lack of self-control when it comes to physical beauty, it's not a one-time thing. You look at verse 15. Again, he sees another woman who's supposed to be off limits to him because she's a prostitute and he wants her, so he sleeps with her. Again, the whole relationship is driven by him seeing her and being physically attracted to her and lacking self-control. He's part of the family of God's promise, but rather than being someone shaped by the promises and provision of God, Judah is a man shaped by the pursuit of physical pleasure and beauty. And I don't think it's going too far to guess that he probably had a reputation in the community for being a little bit promiscuous. I mean, think about it. Out of all the options available to Tamar, the daughter-in-law, for getting a son, out of Judah's family. What made her choose this plan? What made her think, I know how to get a child, dress up as a prostitute, it'll, it'll convince my father-in-law to sleep with me. She knew his character. She knew that he wouldn't say no when sex was offered to him because he had zero self-control when it came to women. And he had a reputation for being that type of a person. But that's not all. Indications are also Judah was not a great father. Like, yes, he had some level of engagement in his son's lives, like he found his son a wife in verse 6, but his sons are evil. His first son is so evil that God kills him in verse 7. And then his second son is so evil that God also kills him in verse 10. God killing people for being so evil happens in the Bible, but it's rare. The fact that two out of three of Judah's sons were killed for being wicked points to the fact that he was absent and unengaged when it came to teaching his sons about God or the proper way to live in the world. So Judah lacks self-control when it comes to women. Judah is a terrible father and it doesn't end there. Judah is fearful. His fear leads him to act oppressively towards others. As the family that Tamar married into, Judah's family had a responsibility to provide and care for Tamar. And yet we see in verse 11, Judah is scared that if his third son marries Tamar, that kid's going to die too. So he not only keeps Tamar from marrying his third son, but he actually sends her back to her father's house. He wants to keep her supposed bad luck as far away from his family as possible. And actually sending her back to her father's house would have made her an unwanted burden to her family because she couldn't contribute or provide financially and she was another mouth to feed. Judah, because of his fear, neglects his duty to care and provide for her and instead places that burden on someone else because he thinks that she's bad luck. 
And of course, the irony is, the curse is not her fault, it's the result of Judah ignoring God's call on him, marrying an off-limits woman who's going to draw him away from God, and living for himself and his own pleasures rather than teaching his sons about God. But he doesn't see that, and because of his fear, Judah, the man who's supposed to be responsible for caring for Tamar, making sure she gets a male heir, condemns her to die poor and childless. And then, of course, the other big thing that we see about Judah here, he is judgmental. Notice, he had sex outside of marriage. He doesn't feel bad about it. He doesn't think twice about it. But the moment he hears his daughter-in-law did the same thing, he responds with, burn her. Now, to give Judah the benefit of the doubt here, he would see this as a different situation because he's not legally married after the death of his wife. He doesn't know the prostitute he slept with is actually married and Tamar was still legally engaged or married to Judah's son. But that doesn't change the fact that he's quick to judge someone else very, very harshly for doing the exact same things wrong that he had done. Now all that to say, Judah was a mess. Actually, he's so much of a mess that it may feel hard for some of us to even identify him. Like, yeah, we know we mess up, but this is another level. But realize this. Last week we talked about idols. We said idols aren't just statues you bow down to, but they're anything that we put in God's place in our hearts. Anything we look to to give us ultimate meaning or security or purpose in life. And when we put other things in God's place, whether it's money or sex or comfort or security or family, or anything else. Putting something else in God's place in our heart is always the reason we act in sinful ways. So yes, Judah's external actions may have been more extreme than ours, but the things happening in his heart are the exact same things happening in our hearts whenever we do anything wrong. He's seeking something other than God to give him what only God can give. He wanted comfort. So he slept with an attractive woman. He wanted safety, so he sent the person away that he thought was bringing bad luck on his family. He wanted a good family, so he wanted his son to stay alive. And all these things ended up manifesting themselves in abusive and oppressive and sinful ways that probably feel more extreme in their outward manifestation for him than they typically do for us. But on a heart level, the same thing is happening with him as is happening in any of our hearts. And realize, sin is like a weed. It grows, and if it's not uprooted, it keeps growing and puts us on a tra trajectory where our external actions, if unchecked by heart transformation, will become more and more like Judah as we move into the future. Left to our own devices, Judah's life of abuse and oppression and judgmentalism and evil, that's the traje trajectory we're all headed towards if we're left to ourselves. But there's hope for us because this messed up guy, Judah, got blessed by God. Listen to the blessing that his father, Jacob, speaks over Judah before Jacob dies. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. 
and your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Isn't that incredible? This blessing for such a messed up guy, saying that his brothers will praise him, promising him victory like a lion has over its prey, saying the scepter will not depart from him, that his descendants will be rulers over others and others will obey them and pay tribute to him. And the even crazier part, these words weren't just empty promises from a hopeful father on his deathbed. They were prophetic words that God fulfilled. Because later on, Israel's kingly line of King David came from the line of Judah, this messed up guy. Jesus, God in human flesh, descended from the line of Judah. Judah goes from being the guy whose family is cursed, like literally God put two of his sons to death, and Judah condemns his daughter-in-law to die for doing the exact same thing he himself had done. They are under a curse, but they go from being under a curse to being honored, as honored and blessed as any family can be. God himself descends from the line of Judah. And the even crazier part, which we're going to look at more next week, is that this blessing of Jesus coming from the line of Judah It's not something that God just happened to work out despite Judah's sin and failure. No, it's something God brought about through Judah's sin and failure. One of the kids that he had through this relationship where he hired his daughter-in-law as a prostitute became the one whose line Jesus would continue through. God took a totally messed up guy who was under a curse and God transformed him and blessed him. How does that transformation happen? Well, let's wrap up by looking at the transformation of Judah. And let me just say, this transformation, it's a process, but it's a process that starts with repentance. Look at verse 25 of today's passage. They're bringing Tamar out to burn her. And she says, look, these items, they belong to the father. Figure out whose they are. You can burn him too and get your full justice. And then in verse 26, Judah sees them He recognizes them and look how he responds. He says, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son, Sheila. He doesn't deny his sin and pretend that it's a setup. He doesn't try to hide from what he's done. He doesn't look for any type of moral high ground where he can say, I I was right to do what I did and she was wrong. No. He says, she's more right than I am. I was wrong. Judah repents. Jack Miller, a theologian and pastor, he gives a great definition of repentance. He says, repentance is our coming undone in respect to all human righteousness, followed by going outside ourselves in faith to Christ alone for salvation. I'll read that again because it's excellent. Repentance is our coming undone in respect to all human righteousness followed by going outside ourselves to faith in Christ alone for repentance. Basically, it's recognizing there's nothing we can do to be good enough for God through our effort. It's letting go 
of our hope that we can earn God's approval through our efforts. And it's throwing all of our hope of salvation on Jesus. And that transformative process is exactly what happens to Judah in today's passage. He realizes how wicked and terrible his heart is. But at the same time, he sees the promises of God coming true for him. He sees that I am a sinful, rebellious person, but God is faithful. He has worked to preserve my family line from ending. And when he sees that, it changes him. You know, our culture has lots of false ideas of what it means to repent. Some people think repentance just means admitting what you did was wrong, saying you're sorry, don't need to worry about any attempts to turn from it or, or change for the future. Other people think repentance means just try to do better next time, but you don't necessarily have to admit that what you did before was wrong. But here's the problem with those approaches. They're centered around what we need to do to make it better. I just need to apologize and then I'm okay. I just need to do better next time and then I'll be okay. But true repentance isn't about what we do. It's about realizing we can't fix ourselves, throwing ourselves on Jesus and trusting him to save and transform us. That's why faith and obedience have to be present for repentance to be true repentance. Because repentance is one side of the equation. It's turning from our sin. But faith is the opposite. As we turn from our sin, we have to turn to something else. And that something we turn to is Jesus. We turn from our sin. And as we do that, we turn in faith to Jesus and we trust in him. And look at how this plays out with Judah. He doesn't take either of these wrong approaches of saying sorry without change or trying to do better without recognizing his sin in the past. No, he fully owns his sin. He recognizes that he was wrong, so wrong that he cannot fix himself. And then he turns from that to a life of obedient trust in God. And we can actually see the beginning of his turning in verse 26 right here. Look at the end of the verse. He did not know her again. Why is that important? Well, because in the Bible, no in this verse means to have sex with someone. So Judah, the man with such a reputation for promiscuity that his daughter-in-law knew, if I want to get pregnant, I just have to dress up as a prostitute while he's walking by. He commits to chastity towards her. He's not just saying sorry, he's turning to a life of obedience to God. And this moment of repentance is a turning point in Judah's life. You know, we've already looked at Judah's life up to this point, but look how it turns around from here. Sometime later, a famine hits the land. The family is running out of food. So Jacob sends his 10 oldest sons to Egypt to get food. And who's in charge of the food distribution except for their younger brother, Joseph, the same guy they sold into slavery all those years ago. They don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. And he does a test. He says, I'm going to keep one of you in prison here. The rest of you go home, and if you ever want to get food from us again, next time you come, you're bringing your youngest brother. Now, if you don't know the story, the youngest brother, Benjamin, is the only surviving child from Jacob's favorite wife. He is precious to his father. Jacob will not let Benjamin out of his sight. The brothers try to convince their dad to send Benjamin so the family can have food, but he says, no, 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 there's no way he's leaving my sight. Until Judah the de facto oldest brother, steps up. And in Genesis 43, verses 8 through 9, he says, Send the boy with me, and we will rise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones, I will be a pledge of his safety. 
from my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, let me bear the blame forever. Judah puts his life on the line as a pledge of his younger brother's safety. And Jacob says, fine, go. So brothers go back to Egypt with Benjamin and Joseph starts part two of his test. He frames Benjamin for a crime and says as a penalty for what he has done, Benjamin has to stay in Egypt as a slave and all the other brothers can go free. Now the old Judah would have said, too bad for him, let's get home. But this act of repentance has set his life on a new trajectory. It's a trajectory of giving life, not death to others. It's a trajectory of blessing others, not cursing them. So Judah turns all the brothers around. They go back to Joseph together, still not knowing he's their brother. And Judah goes to Joseph as a private conversation. And he says, let me read it to you from Genesis 44, verses 32 through 34. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Do you see that? Judah, the man who is willing to sacrifice Joseph's life for the sake of his own comfort, the man who is willing to sacrifice Tamar's well-being for the sake of his son's safety, has undergone a complete transformation. He's not the same person anymore. He is now a man who's willing to lay down his own life for the sake of saving his brother. He's a man who seeks to live in a way that blesses others. And because Judah offers to sacrifice himself, Joseph reveals his true identity. The family is restored and they're provided for throughout the famine. And when we look at Judah in that light, it makes perfect sense that Jesus would come from Judah's line. Because what Judah did for his brother there is exactly what Jesus did for us. Jesus is the true and greater Judah who not only offers to take our place as a slave, but who does take our place under a sentence of death. Following in Judah's footsteps, Jesus laid down his life so that others who were condemned to die could live. Jesus bore the penalty that you and I deserve for our rebellion against God. And just as Judah's path to blessing started with repentance, our path to blessing and true life in Jesus starts with repentance as well. It starts with recognizing our rebellion against God, recognizing there's nothing we can do to fix it, throwing ourselves on Jesus, apologizing, but trusting him to turn us from pursuing our selfish, selfish desires to pursuing him instead. So how could I name my son Judah? Well, because I want my son to remember Remember that no matter how bad he fails in life, he's never too far from God's love or blessing. To remember that repentance is the key to God's blessing. To remember that his past failures are not the things that define him. And as long as he stays in God's story, his future is glorious. And I want him to be growing into the type of man who's going to be willing to lay down his life for his brothers. And I want him, like the original Judah, to be a man who is blessed by God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your blessing and that it's freely available to us through the gift of Jesus. Thank you that you transformed lives, that you transformed Judah 
and that you offer to transform us. God, make us people who are being transformed into your image and becoming a blessing to others each day. In Jesus' name, amen.